Come with me now, back to the end of the last century, to the Paris Opera House, Le Palais Garnier, with its opulent heaven of marble and gilt glittering above, while below lies the tormented hell of darkness. Here lie the chambers of death, where shadows linger and time stands still. Nothing moves, save rats and spiders who have made these damp, cold stones their home. Nothing moves, and yet the ghosts of madness stalk this lonely realm to chill the blood and stir one's darkest fears with strange imaginings, to glimpse the silent shadow of he who rules this grim terrain, his ghastly face forever hidden from the light, for he is master here, the phantom, the phantom of the opera. Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today I'm joined by Kelly Hogaboom to discuss the unmasking scene in 1925's The Phantom of the Opera. Ship to ship. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Hello Kelly. Good evening, Eric. Good afternoon. Um, so, is the curse of Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, banished out of your, <laughs> your 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 brain? Has this film done it? Uh, yeah, I I feel like this. I've completely disassociated from the Andrew Lloyd Webber by watching this film. So I'm I'm back on track with the Phantom. Yes, yes, and what a, what a way to do it. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a classic film. Um, it's a classic design, um, and it's a classic. So um, I'm I'm glad. At least this podcast has given you the opportunity to finally watch it. Yeah, I um, I think I've mentioned before that my family, we don't watch a lot of silent film. Um, I've probably only seen a total of 10 or 12, uh, but I was pretty impressed with this one. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, as I say, you've only just recently seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've said so many times on this show, you know, I'm studying these horror books that were out in the 70s there were always tons of photos of Lon Chaney senior there were always chapters devoted to his work because he did have this uh, he did this uh, have this career of playing tortured very often disfigured sometimes quite grotesque characters didn't he yeah I was reading a little bit about him and um, from what I understood he did about 158 films in a 17-year film career before he died kind of young and we've only got about 50 films that are surviving Mm. in part um 
and or in part or in total. And I, I get the impression, I'm sure you know more than I do, but that not only his talent, but the fact that it's hard to find his body of work is, is one of the reasons that he's still talked about so much today. There is a lot of myth about the man, you know. I mean, um, um, the fact that he played these characters, the fact that he did all his makeup himself, and right. the fact that he kept his secrets of how he did his makeup. I mean, everything is conjecture. Nobody knows for sure quite how he went about things, and we'll be talking about that uh, um, later on. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it all creates this myth of the man, and um, as you say, a lot of his films are, are lost films. One called London After Midnight is right. just about the most desired film. Yeah. Although, it, it, if you read contemporary reviews of the film when it did come out, uh, apparently it was quite a mediocre film. And that the, 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 the vampire character he plays in that film, that quite startling uh, look that he's got in that uh, that wasn't a real vampire it, 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 it's it, it's like a, a crime movie it's a detective movie and this guy dresses up and pretends to be a vampire it's not a real horror film at all yeah I mean I've seen that image many times I mean I bet most people have seen it even people that aren't interested in film or film history um, and uh, yeah the Phantom same thing I mean I've seen the image and it was several years before I connected the image to any particular film but mm -hmm. um it's funny you say that about him hiding his secrets because you know in preparation for this film i was i was like oh well i wonder how he did it <laughs> and i couldn't find i couldn't find out very much about how he did it and um that's kind of where i learned a little bit more about his his history you know it is <clears> all <throat> guesswork you know t total guesswork and i think you know um the thing with this version of the film there were subsequent films made, and this is a tough act to follow. And I, I've seen pretty much all of them, and what always, uh, where it always falls down for me, even though you know the actors might be very good and the film is quite a good film, it is the uh, the makeup, it is the actual look of the Phantom when he is unmasked. Nothing compares to this, I don't think. Same with Lon Chaney's Quasimodo. I don't think there will ever be a, a, a better uh, Quasimodo for me. Yeah, and if I, I mean, that was what two years before Phantom, so mm. he and it was well received. So I, I think people's expectations were high, and the mm. fact that they hadn't uh, released any images of of what the Phantom looked like, and the way that they reveal the his face, it was, it was. I can see why it was a big deal. You know, it's a great, it's a great moment in cinema for sure. And it, you know, this is 1925. You know. Um... Yeah, 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 you know, um, we're nearly a, a hundred years later, and um, the, these shock moment things are still happening in horror films now, aren't they? Yeah, you know? definitely. Although with the internet and everything, nothing's a secret anymore. But yes, you're absolutely right. This um, this unmasking scene that we're talking about for our sequence today um, was kept totally um, hidden from the public. How he looked was hidden from the public. On Facebook, I will put up some of the poster artwork, uh, the promotional artwork. You never saw his face. You would see him wearing a mask, or you see a shadowy figure, but you would n you never ever saw him in any publicity whatsoever. Yeah, which obviously was easier to do back then, right? I mean, they must have had super tight control, and you couldn't distribute images the way you can today mm. with just a click of your, you know, grabbing a photo and posting it to Twitter. But, uh, you know, I just want to briefly uh, go on a little tangent. 
I just watched the film Hereditary. Have you seen that? Nope. Well, let me tell you, I it's one of the better horror movies I've seen. And if you watch it, watch it in the daytime. Um, it was extremely <laughs> scary. But they they, I think, successfully kept a pretty major reveal um, under wraps. And so when it happened in the film, it was a shock. And it made me think about, so, you know, this, this, this shock happens a third of the way through the movie. And mm-hmm. it made me think about how hard it is for films to pull that off today. Do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like when yeah. Tom, Tom Skerritt was killed in the movie Alien. Um, I, my impression was that was a massive shock because people thought he was the hero, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think it's harder to do that today. I think, um, and it's, that's a shame because that's such a great moment. Those those true shocks that you you don't have any way of of um, anticipating. You know. Yeah, I haven't seen that film, but um, you know uh, this solo film that has just come out. You know, um, the major talking point, uh, or one of the major talking points about the film was the fact that at the end of the film you have this Darth Maul character come back. You know, who was in the Phantom <laughs> right. Menace, right? And, Word had not got out about that at all. Even people in the industry and connected to Star Wars did not know that that was going to be there. And I, I, th- I think it's fabulous that you can sometimes still cheat and manage to keep something under wraps because that's when you're meant to find things out. In the cinema is when you're meant to find things out, isn't it? I totally agree. And that's one reason that I rarely watch a trailer. Um, I don't want to know anything about the movie. And... 95% of the time, that's a good decision. Uh, but a few, t- sometimes it leads you down the wrong path uh, where I'll watch a film that I probably wouldn't have even bothered with because I, I kept away. But yeah, in general, I try to not know anything because most trailers give you a tremendous amount of information. And mm. I personally think that's kind of a shame. Mm. All right. Okay. Um, ha- had you ever read the book before? Did you know the story of The Phantom of the Opera? I only, I, the novel, you're talking about the 1910, the source novel? Yes. No, yes. no, but of course I kind of knew, so I'm 41, so the Phantom of the Opera, Andrew Lloyd Webber was huge when I was in high school. I had a lot of theater nerd friends who loved it. Um, so I knew, what I knew was that there was some creepy dude who developed a fixation on a, a young Anjou and, he tried to manage her career, tried to help her career, and of course he ends up wanting, you know, to, I mean, basically marry slash rape her. That's all I knew. And um, I didn't realize he was so murderous. <laughs> so mm. I thought he was more of a lurker. So that's that's it. That was my full background for this story. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into our sequence. <clears throat> what about you? And... Uh... <laughs> All right, so here, here we go. Oh, by the way, uh, I, I'd just like to say, you know, this is one of the the, the few times where I thought th- actually think it's cool to be called Eric because the Phantom's real name is Eric, except with a K. So, right. yeah, I'll take that. Because over here, I, I know in America, Eric is quite a, a common, uh, you, you know, uh, first name. But over here, it's pretty much an old man's name. You don't oh. get young. Yeah, th- th- there's no children called Eric around here. I think... My my generation was a bit of an oddity. It's an old man's name. I think I've only met four other Eric's in my life. You know, so, oh, yeah. so and 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 growing up, Eric is kind of like a comedy name over here. You know, because you have a lot of comedians like Eric Idle, Eric Morecambe. 
you know. And uh, so, yeah, there, there were no real cool people called Eric okay. um, as I was growing up. So it was actually nice to read a book and watch a film where you've got an Eric who uh, is actually quite distinctive. You know? Oh, that's that's cool. Okay, so, so it'd be like a name like Horace is over here, like kind of a funny old-fashioned name. That's funny because Eric is really common, especially with men my age who I don't consider old men. I know that. I know that just from listening to podcasts and the amount of American podcasts I listen to where you have Eric's on there. You yeah. know, th that would not happen over here unless you're doing something about geriatrics. That's about <laughs> the only time you'd get a lot okay. of Eric's on well, podcasts funny. in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. So just before this sequence we're going to talk about today, Christine, uh, she gets a note from Eric saying that uh, she's not in any peril as long as she doesn't touch his mask because, of course, you know, he's captured her. She's down in the catacombs underneath the uh, Paris Opera House, isn't she? Right. Yeah, and, and the notes... Um, Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, so the the background for the story is that it's kind of unclear to me. You know, she's she seems to be somewhat hypnotized by him, right? Mm. Um, I couldn't tell if the film was saying he had supernatural powers or anything like that, but... So she's kind of halfway in in his thrall and then halfway definitely not wanting to be there, like definitely, a you know, a kidnap victim. Right. So she's mm. she kind of goes in and out of that, which I found a little confusing in the in the story. Yeah, I mean, in the book, it's not supernatural whatsoever. It, it, it's just a magnetism. You, 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 okay. you know, she's just fascinated by this character. And for him to say, look, you're not in any danger as long as you don't touch my mask. I mean, that's just putting more <laughs> temptation in her way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's all very melodramatic. I mean, we've got to remember this is 1925 and cinema uh, is a new medium. It's only 20 years old. And, and the, the, the style of acting is very... Um, flamboyant, isn't it? It's very melodramatic. It's as if they are on stage still doing these grand gestures so the people in the back row of the auditorium can see them, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, but again, I haven't seen a lot of silent film, but I really did think this whole movie had incredibly sophisticated um, blocking, you know, where the the movement of the characters on the stage and the body language of the actors was great. So, I yeah, it's definitely got that stage look to it, which is why a lot of younger audiences won't necessarily um, respond to these films as much as, um, you know, someone a little older, someone with a film history background. But, uh, yeah, it's very dramatic, and he is, gr he is great. I mean, every, every motion he makes on screen is extremely expressive. So he's sitting yeah. there at the piano playing... What was it? Um, tr the Triumph of Don Juan or something like that's that. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And 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 yeah. That that's where he is. He's playing away, <laughs> and that's when she enters his chamber. Yeah. It, it's called Don Juan Triumphant. Okay. It's the piece of music that he's playing, and you know, I thought of you when I was watching it for the podcast. I was thinking of you. You, you know, with your uh, costume background, his his mask is very odd because it's sort of like. I don't know if it's a plastic, but it's almost semi-transparent, and he's got like a fabric veil covering his mouth, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, it was super gross, because I'm just thinking, um, I mean, imagine like how much that mask is going to just stink with, with the, like, <laughs> if you eat or breathe, or like, it was just gross, but it is a very odd mask, it does have a translucent look, I mean, I wish I could have seen it in color, because I, too, I was wondering how they made it, it looks like kind of like a resin, 
And then, yes, there's a flap that's hanging down that obscures right down to his chin. And it's kind of cool because with all the images I've seen of this film, I had never seen any that showed his mask. That That isn't an incredibly iconic um, aspect of the film. So I thought yeah. that was kind of cool. You see, as I say, I mean, I grew up uh, with stills, especially that still of of the reveal that we're just about to talk about. And I, I knew the film from that, and I knew the film... It was one of these things, you and I have spoken about this before, the Aurora model kits that were out in the 70s. And, I, and I've got, and still have, uh, my Phantom... Uh, model kit and he's holding his mask up um but the mask is just a solid bit of plastic because it's a model kit there's no veil or anything so when i finally got round to seeing this film which i think was in the 80s and uh oh that's something i didn't mention the first time i ever saw this uh channel four one of the tv channels over here put it on and uh it, it had a score uh, not a classical score like this it, it was by rick whiteman okay the prog rock oh. musician and uh yeah with an introduction by christopher lee and uh, i'll have to look on um, youtube to see if that's around because that was an odd odd uh musical choice for it so it wasn't until i actually got it on dvd i got a very nice you know us uh, dvd of this that uh i i heard it as it was meant to be heard and i saw the mask for the first time and it's like I don't remember the mask being like this, but of course the mask was never meant to be how I know it. It was meant to look like this, this strange failed thing. Right, right. Mm. And um, that's, you know, that's such a cool, like the, one of the creepier scenes is a little bit before this when she, he's just brought her down to the fifth cellar down dungeon and, and she darts into the other room and finds, I think, a coffin and she comes back into where he's standing and he says, that's where I sleep. Do you, yes. Yeah. And he's got that creepy mask on. And so only his, the motion of his eyes and his body language. And he's so calm. He's just, you know, it's one of the few times he's not up in her face. You know, he's mm. leaning against. That was a really, that was, that was one of the scarier scenes for me. It was pretty cool. But um, yeah, and the fez, he's got the fez, which is such yes, a clever, he's... yeah, it covers his hairline, right? Because part of what we're about to see in the reveal that's shocking is his hairline. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so he's got the fez, he's got the mask. She comes up behind him, right? Yeah. Talking about the fez, something when I proposed this to you, I said, oh, uh, I've got an article for it. I can't find it. it. It was in a magazine, and I can't find it. I don't know where it's gone, but this article in the magazine was looking at the stills, and they were trying to work out what the materials of the costumes were uh, yeah. and what the colours of the costumes were. And I wish I still had it, because it was very interesting. They were talking about the way the light was reflecting off the material, what most probably it was, whether it was a cotton, whether it was wool, etc., etc., and how I think it was about the colour of his tie that he's wearing matches the inside of his cape. You know, the light was the same, so that's most probably the same colour and stuff like that. I wish I still had it because I can't remember what they said about the fez or the mask. Yeah, you would have to be kind of a forensic film expert and also know a little bit about materials engineering to make, mm. to, you know what I'm saying? Because if you and I were trying to figure that out... Uh... You know, good luck. It's yeah. it's impossible, but that's pretty fascinating. I I recently watched um, it came from beneath the sea and in 1955, and I watched the colorized version. And you know, they they had to make 
they just are made choices about what color all the clothes mm. were, right? And yeah. um, I, I think that's such a cool. I I wonder how much they're just making it up, and how much they actually know what they're talking about, or have any knowledge as to what the costumes were made out of. Yeah, it's like when you watch uh, footage of um, where they've coloured in World War One footage. And everyone is exactly the same color. All their uniforms are exactly the same. And it's like, I'm sure there would be some variation here. Yeah. 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 But like you say, Christine, she's just behind him as he's playing on his music. And she keeps trying to, you know, reach his mask and then pull her hands back, doesn't she? Again, I mean, this is early cinema. Now that looks all a bit, you know, very stagey, and it's like, oh, come on, get on with it. But back then, <laughs> I reckon if you were in the audience back then, this is like a really, really tense scene. Yeah, absolutely. They, I, I can't remember how far into the film this scene is, but it's a fair bit. And, um, yep, she reaches out, pulls back, reaches out. I think she does it twice before she finally... Yeah. And he doesn't he turn around and look at her yes. after this? Yeah. When, when, when she finally does it, because we're, we're looking at the back of him, and when she finally does it, the camera switches from a view of Christine uh, and the back of Eric right into his face. I mean, that is a brilliant cut where mm -hmm. it goes straight into that and the music of horses, like that. You, you know, and you've got, got this extreme close-up for his reveal. And it's horrific. I mean, you know, it's horrific now. I mean, if you, if Rick Baker was to, you know, uh, recreate this uh, now, it would be horrific. But back then, 1925, and you yeah. had this. Good grief. I, again, I don't know that much about this era of film, but I feel like audiences had come to expect, um, you know, theater-level makeup, right? So mm. they weren't expecting the severity of his, of what he looks like and um not only is the camera you know right in front of his face but he does a shocked expression at the very moment we see his face it's just yeah. per it's a perfect uh few minutes in or few moments in um cinematic history it's just perfect yeah um just as a small aside you just reminded me i i, I read something once about how you know films from like you, you, you know 1920 onwards you you did start getting in in horror films and fantasy films more and more grotesque grotesque uh, characters, and they were saying it was a reflection of World War One that you know after World War One oh. there were so many you know disfigured people, um, you, you, you know who who had these horrific injuries after World War One, and they think that that might might have actually been an influence yeah, and... on filmmaking. <laughs> We seem to have such a fear of facial injuries. I mean, uh, if you think about it, film villains to this day often have facial disfigurements, which is, you know, super insensitive. <laughs> but, but like, you know, every Bond, almost every Bond villain has had some kind of facial. Yeah, there's you know, a problem. scar, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, he's we he weeps blood, or I think one guy had webbed hands, but um, you know, it's usually facial disfigurement. Yeah. And if you look at um. If you just do a search on Phantom of the Opera makeup, you'll see more, several, you'll see a couple dozen contemporary versions. And a lot of them are just, they're, they're not as good as this 1925. So hats off to Mr. Cheney here. Yeah, total hats off. And yes, you're right. His reaction, that almost scream that he's giving out as he looks directly at the camera at uh, at this betrayal and uh, she reacts old mary philbin she reacts and 
he comes to the camera and there's sort of like a soft focus effect on the lens and he's looking straight into the camera as he comes forward. I mean, I don't know if people were fainting back then, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Yeah, that's the urban legend, right? That people were screaming and fainting. I, I always have to wonder about those stories, but it, yeah. that was definitely great because my impression is that's her perspective, right? Her vision yes. yeah, swimming that's what she's, she's seen. you know, yes. we, we yeah. are her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, he comes right into the camera, and then um, he, he grabs her by the neck and laughs yeah. and, and, and says, Feast your eyes, glut your soul on my accursed ugliness. Yeah. See, I can relate to that being a fellow Eric. <laughs> I, I can relate to, I've <laughs> no. used that line many a time, yes. And uh, we change to an undershot view of him as uh, Cheney is giving it plenty of pathos now about saying about, you know, old, old mad Christine who would not heed my warning. Um, so we have this high-tension moment leading up to it. We have the shock reveal, and it is a shock reveal. But then after this, the spell, I think, for me is slightly broken because it goes a bit OTT again, doesn't it? Uh, and what do you mean? As she pleads to, 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 to him to let her go, and, uh, and he, he starts saying, well, if you see your lover again, you know, it's death to them both. It, it, we're back into the large gestures again, you know. Um, um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole film, the, you know, the film's what, an hour and 40 minutes long. And mm. most of the film, he's, he's threatening to rape her. The whole, I mean, he starts out early on where he says something like, I, you know, once I materialize, I demand your love. You know, that, that's one mm. of the first things he says to her. And the rest of the film, he's just, he's just threatening her. And yeah, I think that gets old to watch, you know. So as far as like the theatrics, I, I didn't mind the theatrics. I, I feel like those are part and parcel with this era of film. But, um, but yeah, but also in filmmaking, you've just had this high point. You've had this big shock moment. What are you going to do? How are you going to build on that if you don't do this? You either cut away. You can't sustain that, that, gotcha. that shock moment, can you? You've got yeah. to then do something, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of I don't I don't know how I would have handled that moment actually, but you're right that um giving the viewers uh, a minute away from him to kind of process that that scary yes. scene. You're right. I Yeah, I, you've got I, to I recover, you. haven't you? Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's our sequence done. That's that, that it's the unmasking scene. That scene is over. Um when you were looking into things, did you did you read up much about Lon Chaney Sr.? Do you know much about his background? I do know a little. I know he was born to um, deaf parents, and that as a young man, he was in sort of a, it looked, sounded like a traveling type of troupe, mm. and that's where he got a lot of his um, versatility as an actor. Um, I also learned, you know, he, he was... Sounds like he wasn't a very good family man. Uh, he treated his wife and his son pretty rough. But um, I guess the thing I was surprised most about is just how short his career was and how young he died. That was something I hadn't been aware of. Yeah, this this uh, he died of lung cancer, and a lot of people were attributing uh, that to the punishments you know that he put himself through and the materials and the chemicals he was using, you know, to achieve these makeup effects. I mean. Uh, he was using collodion, which is not exactly the best uh, uh, 
uh, thing to be putting all over your face. Um, <laughs> and they do think it is a factor. But yes, yeah, no, you're right. And it wasn't just his uh, mother and father that were deaf. It was uh, his mother's relations. They were all deaf as well. Mm, okay. And they say, yeah, he learned the art of mime and everything, you know, from, from when he was very young. Yes. And it sounded to me like... Um one of his breakout films was The Penalty, in which he played a double amputee. Uh, and reading about what he put his body through to appear legless, mm, that yeah. was pretty intense, right? Can you imagine um, strapping your <laughs> legs up so, you know, your your feet are up by your backside and you are walking on your knees? I mean, yeah, look, yeah. truth. Yeah, oh. that's... Um, so yeah, by even by what nineteen twenty, he had already established himself on screen as someone who would go to kind of any length to get across that, like you say, a monstrous, you know, piteous character. So it, it was extreme what he was doing. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. He divorced from his wife, and um, you know, um, Lon Chaney Jr. Apparently, um, Lon Ch his dad, Lon Chaney here, um, told him that his mother was dead. But Lon Chaney didn't find out yeah. until his father had died that she was actually still alive. Yeah, it sounds like an ugly story. Like, you know, I don't know how old he was, but he married her when she was 16 and she had a suicide attempt. So he, he cut her out of, of their yeah. lives. So yeah, it's kind of an ugly story. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know much about Lon Chaney Jr., so I don't um, know how that affected him. But, um, yeah, you know, there's often an unhappy story behind mm. some of these actors. Mm. Yeah. Well, like I said at the beginning, um, some of the great mystery about Lon Chaney Sr. is just how he achieved these makeup effects, because he had his box of tricks. Um, he never told anybody anything about it. I mean, he, er he earned the nickname uh, The Man of a Thousand Faces, mm. which was the name of the uh, James Cagney film that was based on him. Um and uh, there, there, there were actual um, slogans. Did you know this? Slogans and catchphrases to do with him. I heard um, like don't something about watch out. You don't sp step on that spider. It might be Lon Chaney. Yeah, or, yeah, about, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't squash that lizard that comes out uh, from under a rock. It might be Lon Chaney. Yeah. And also, he, he was used uh, in a form of a threat, which was Lon Chaney will get you if you don't watch out. That's what parents told their wow. children. <laughs> so he, he was built sort of like the bogeyman, if you like. You know, yeah, we we have a few of those kind of bigger than life. Um, you know, you probably saw the trailer that just came out with uh, it's about uh, our former vice president Dick Cheney, um, and it's starring Christian Bale. Have you seen visuals for that? No, no, I haven't. Oh well, Christian, you know Christian Bale. I think he's a Welsh actor, isn't he? He is. Um, yes. Yeah, he he has a reputation for doing extreme uh, transformations mm. and. Uh, if you know, just imagining him looking like Dick Cheney, it's pretty amazing when you see the foot. I mean, the pictures. But you know, uh, Gary Oldman is another one. Yeah, who, yeah. And, and I think, um, oh, what's his name? Daniel Day Lewis. You know, we have some of these actors that will we think of as you know extremely versatile and willing to go to you know incredible lengths to get a performance. Mm. You know, yeah. punishing lengths. Yeah. Yeah, and he was doing this here in the very early twenties. Yeah. Um, yeah, this this makeup for this uh, for this film for the Phantom. Um, there's tons of guesswork about what he was doing and how he achieved it. Um, and a popular falsehood is that that very distinctive uh, upwards nose that he's got uh, that it was pulled back by a strip of fish skin. 
which was attached beneath his bald cap. Have you heard this? Oh, yeah. I hadn't heard that. I heard wire, but I, I yes. I, it's like I couldn't tell if that was true or not. Yeah, but n- now, you know, with restored films and stuff, if you look very cl- closely, you can see there is a thin, almost invisible wire. It runs from the tip of his nose to his skull cap. And uh, apparently this wire would be consistent with reports from the set that his nose bled during production. Uh, uh-huh. So, yeah, that, so there's that. Uh, his cheeks were built up through a combination of cotton and collodion. That stuff. His ears were glued back. Okay. Uh, his eyes were pulled down with spirit gum. Okay. And uh, egg membranes were put into his eyes to give them a cloudy look. Oh, jeez. Yes. Um, and then it was capped off by wearing dentures and the rest of the makeup was grease paint. Okay. Okay. And now, if you how, look... how many, um, how many hours did he spend in this makeup? I mean. Well, a, a, an awful lot of the, uh, the, 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 the first part of the film, you know, he's behind the mask. So that helps. Right. And you've got the, uh, you've got the ball scene as well where he, uh, appears as death doesn't he so that helps so so i i should time it just how long is he on screen in full makeup um because apparently uh part of the unmasking scene were filmed on days when he wasn't wearing all his makeup because if you look very carefully when he's got his mask on his ears aren't glued back okay so right. people were suggesting that under that mask, he wasn't made up at all. That was just his regular face. I'd love to see a photo of him without his makeup. But, of course, they didn't take photos because this was a big no-no to show any sort of uh, photos or document it in any way. You know? Well, and I guess another thing I was thinking is, you know, there's how much time he had to put it on for to be on screen. But I think the production was plagued with a bunch of reshoots. And so I'm just wondering how many times he had to put that stuff on his face you know um, there are there are reshoots and again it's something i'll put on facebook there are comparison uh shots uh between the different versions and and the the differences are very very subtle but yes you can see you know that there were different takes done of it you know Mm -hmm. um and some people have said uh, uh, that uh lon chaney himself uh directed several of the scenes including this one um, a lot of people have said that Lon Chaney actually uh, directed this. If so, yeah, hats it sounded. Off to him. <clears throat> yeah, and it sounded like he and the director didn't get along, and so um, it's it's one of those cases where the end result is great for audiences, but it sounded like a um, pretty troubled production to be a part of. Oh um, yeah, oh know. yeah, definitely. Um, what else have I got? Yes. Have you seen that? Um, everyone keeps saying it. I don't know if it's true, but uh, Mary Philbin's reaction to the unmasked phantom was real because Mary Philbin hadn't seen him in makeup. Yeah, I mean, but that's I think that's kind of an urban legend around films. They're always talking about some actress who didn't know what was going to happen and who didn't, you know, who was shocked and had a nervous breakdown after and you know i always wonder it's like it was that a true story <laughs> you know? uh, I, I don't i don't I, I don't believe it because her reaction while good is a very uh hollywood reaction yeah, yeah. if you compare that to another you know actor who who 
supposedly didn't know something was going to happen, uh, Veronica Cartwright yep. in Alien. I was just thinking of that scene, yeah. yeah. Now, that is a natural reaction. <laughs> if, if Mary Philbin had acted like that and just started screaming and, and ran away, I would believe it. But no, Mary Philbin, it's just the, the 1920s hands-up-to-the-face acting, isn't it? Yeah, I I guess if I was a director, I would want everyone to know something scary was going to happen, but I wouldn't tell them what it was going to be because it's pretty risky to just spring something entirely on mm. someone. But of course, yeah. th you know, this is a moment that we've been anticipating the whole film, right? I mean, it's, you know, we know something creepy is under that mask. It's not, it's not quite like the alien scene, right? <laughs> Where mm. Nobody knew something was growing inside that man's body. You know? No, no, that was a shock moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um we were saying about how did the audience react and everything, and I saw somewhere that uh, this is Gregory Peck's earliest movie memory. It uh, was being scared, so scared oh, of nice. this film that he was aged nine, and uh, that his grandmother allowed him to sleep in the bed with her that night. He was so scared by it. <laughs> That's awesome. I want that to be true. I really do want that to be true. And okay, so just as a, as a tangent, Eric, what's your first scary movie uh, memory? Oh, you'll like it. Do you want to know what it is? Yeah. I married a monster from outer space. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it 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 was the when you would see the lightning flash and the 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 man would turn back into the monster and you'd see him briefly. That that okay. I, I think I was watching that New, New Year's Eve when I was about like seven or something like that. Yeah, and that really did scare me. That did. Do you know? I married how... a monster from outer space. Do you know how old you were? About seven. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. for me. I was eight, and I was watching The Shining from behind the couch. You were um, eight watching yeah. The Shining. Oh, Which obviously that's not okay. Um, <laughs> but like it, any parents listening, you know, please vet your films better for yes. your young children. But I mean, um, very vivid memory of <laughs> being just scared to, to out of my wits. Yeah. Cool. Blimey. I always thought it was cool about this film that the the opera house set that they built, you know, for this was still standing. You know, I thought that was so good of Universal to respect the film and the craftsmanship of the people that made this exact replica that they kept it standing. But it no, they demolished it in 2014 uh, to make so, room f f for more uh, room for the theme park. So that um was. Does that include the large, the seats and the stage? All of that was fabricated? Yeah, yeah. That's, that, I was thinking it must have been because of the chandelier scene. Um, yeah, no, that that, was, that that was all built on Universal's lot. They, they had the uh, set designers and everything fly out to Paris to visit the real one. And, it, and it's pretty much an exact re reproduction, much like they did for Cheney's uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame um, when they made Notre Dame Cathedral, that's, which that's is at the end of great. this film. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but no, they demolished it in 2014. They they kept um, parts of it, um, but uh, yeah, they demolished it. Um, you say about you know reshoots and everything. This film has actually got a bit of a busy history. Okay, um, when they previewed it in January 1925, uh, the the audience were horrified. Okay, they thought it was too horrific. They thought it was too intense. Okay. And they, they said, oh, we need a bit of lightness in it, okay? And Universal decided, all right, they want lightness. So they filmed a ton of comedy scenes, Yeah. all right, Jeez. with Chester Conkin and Vola Vale, 
okay, as comedy relief, okay, and they also gave a, a, a guy by the name of Ward Crane to be a rival for Christine as well, and uh, in that original one that they showed the audience in that January, um, th at the end of the film, much like in the book, uh, the Phantom dies of a broken heart, okay, and, um, but they didn't like that, the audience didn't like that, so they reshot it, and that's, that's the chase scene that you saw at the end there where they go past Notre Dame you know which mm. was still standing from two years before and that's we that's where he gets thrown into the into the Seine okay right. and then they they showed that to an audience the audience uh, didn't like the comedy in it okay yeah. so a third version came down which was edited quite a bit they lost most of the new stuff uh, but they kept this new ending and that's the one that was released okay these these two other versions, the first one that was too horrific for people with a broken-hearted ending and the second one, which had a ton of comedy and the chase, they're now lost films, okay? Only this third version still survives. Okay? Well, it sounds like the best of the three because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, people probably don't want to see him dying of a broken heart. They don't, they don't see him as a sympathetic character at all, right? No, no, there's got to be retribution, hasn't exactly. there? Exactly, yeah. You, you know, there's yeah. got to be a, a, a punishment, yes. Right. Um, in 1930, after the dawn of sound, they, they wanted to do Return of the Phantom, but uh, they couldn't get uh, Lon Chaney, so they decided instead to re-release it in sound. Okay, so they re-recorded 40% of the film in sound. Okay, but then that was kind of pulled because mm. not all sites had sound uh, back then. So that really didn't go anywhere. Okay. Wow, that's uh, and because I think that's that was the only year um that he did a talkie film, right? It was right before he died, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was I'm the guessing, last film he made. Yeah. So he was too ill to to do the reissue, or mm. yeah, I don't know, but um. I didn't know they tried to put it out there again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's a bit of a convoluted history this film yeah, has got, you know. Right. But it still is is a classic. It's a classic uh, piece of horror. It's a classic piece of twenties uh, uh, filmmaking, isn't it? Now, do you know if anyone has done any project where they've recorded a new score on top of it? You know, like they've done with like Nosferatu and La Belle yeah, and La and... Yeah, there's been different versions because, you know, of course, it's in the public domain now. Uh -huh. And, yeah, there's been a, a, a bunch of re-releases with different things. Like you're saying there with Nosferatu, yeah, o over the years you could get it on video with all sorts of different um, soundtracks. Um, the one I've got, that this American DVD, seems to have quite a nice, you know, suitable... Uh, musical soundtrack. As I say, the very first one I ever heard was a Rick Wakeman one, um, which was bizarre. Um, what one have you, you got? Did you know when you saw it? Oh gosh, I think I have the <clears throat> the BFI Blu-ray release. Um, oh, see, that's the one I need to get. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be different to uh, mine. That's the one that had supposedly the best picture. Um, I'm I'm not a geek who, who um, is obsessive about what prints, you know, come from where. But I did want to give myself a chance to watch the best one out there. Mm. Um, but it seems so. When you watched in the '80s, did you know you knew that that score wasn't the original, or you, oh, yeah, you weren't because paying it's, attention? Yeah, no, because it was Rick Wakeman, and you know it was billed as Rick Wakeman's take gotcha. on. Um, it's like um, when Queen did um, rescored uh, Metropolis as well. Uh -huh. I think that was about the same sort of time. Okay. Maybe Rick Wakeman did this for for this film because of. 
Queen doing Metropolis, you know. I, no, I, I, I was fully aware of that. Um, but I think at that time, that's the only time I'd actually come across the opportunity to watch it. Right. So that's the one I went with. Did um, you ever watch the um, Philip Glass, uh, you know, version of La Bella La Bette from 1946? No, no. I, no. I have to highly recommend that experience. Um, the original, have you seen the original film? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's great, but um, I really like what they did. I I even got a chance to see it live, which was super great. So Ooh. um, you know, and I saw that in high school. Um, that that might have been the first um, really old movie I'd ever seen. Actually, was La Belle La Bette, but um, it it made an impression. And you know, I I'm not one of those who thinks we should never go in and remix or you know, I I like those kinds of projects because I don't think it takes away from the original. The original's still out there, you know. So. Um, so I like it when, like the Nosferatu, um, that was yeah. fun to watch, you know, the, all the, the noises they put in there, but of course yeah. it was completely different than, than the original experience. Yeah. It's not like, um, you know, what they've done with Star Wars is like, we will put out the special editions and you can't see the, uh, the originals ever again sort of yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. 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 They can sit alongside each other, can't they? That's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, um, I just think it's a great way to re-explore something, you know, personally. Mm. Mm. All right, so <clears throat> here we go. What do you think of it in regards to uh, a rating? Are you talking about the special effects only or as a film itself? No, as a sequence. As this sequence, uh, you know, the makeup effects, the, the editing, you know, the, the staging of it. What do you think of it as, gonna, a, as a sequence? I'm going to give it an eight because the makeup was great, um, but it was just a little corny, the, the actual, you know... Um, the the way it unfolds but no it was super great yeah i put eight out of ten great start let down by the ending because you have this big suspenseful thing you have the horrific reveal and then we go back into melodrama so no i'm right. I'm, I'm joining you in the eight okay okay all right okay all right okay well that's us done all right well Thank you, because honestly, I might not have got to watching this for a few years, um, just because there's so much great stuff to watch. And this was, uh, I was impressed with the film overall, and it was a lot of fun. Did you watch it with your family? Oh, no. <laughs> no? They, 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 um, they, they declined. Yeah, it's hard to get them uh, um, into a silent film. It's just okay. none of them are interested. Well, the next film you and I are going to be talking about is not silent, but I still think maybe if they actually saw stills from it, they uh, they um, they m might still not want to watch it. But I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a minute. But yeah, Ke okay. Kelly and I will be talking. Where's my? I've lost my piece of paper. In about, uh, we'll we'll be back with Kelly in about four weeks' time. All right, so stay tuned, everybody out there. Me and Kelly will be back then. Thank you very much, Kelly. All right, thanks, Eric. All right, see you then. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. Everybody wants one. Everybody needs one. Everybody thinks they're going to get a visit from the Phantom. Every single bite of night, time eating into daytime, seems to turn and say.